Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. May Sarton was a prolific 20th century writer known for her poetry, journals, and novels detailing the emotional complexities of the heart and mind. Sarton was an avid gardener, which served as a source of physical engagement, mental therapy, and beauty in her life. Sarton's best-known works describe universally compelling and frustrating themes of love, friendship, and the search for self-knowledge and inner peace. Sarton wrote about the complications of our interior lives and the socio-political constraints on them in a way that no one was doing at the time. From her starkly honest examinations of her own battles with and enrichment by depression in Journal of a Solitude, to a full spectrum of physical love in Mrs. Stevens' Here's the Mermaids Singing. Sarton died in 1995, and for the last 22 years of her life, she lived, wrote, and gardened from a house called Wild Knoll on the southeast coast of Maine. Wild Knoll was the subject of her journal, The House by the Sea, and was owned by Sarton's friends, Mary Lee Smart and Beverly Hallam, and the house was situated on the property where both of these women lived. Before their deaths in 2013 and 2017, respectively, Hallam and Smart had laid the groundwork for their house and all of their land, including Wild Knoll, to become the Surf Point Artist-in-Residence Program. In early 2021, the Surf Point Foundation, due to financial realities of keeping up an old and out-of-repair structure, made the very difficult decision to have the Wild Knoll House raised. Which brings us to today's guest, Carly Glavinsky. Carly is an artist focusing on work that explores the make-do, resourceful attitudes associated with domestic craft and reverence for nature and the great outdoors. The elements of time and place are embedded in her work, measured by tides and seasonal flower blooms, and marked by labor and repetitive process, which sounds like gardening to me. In late spring of 2021, Carly became a resident at Surf Point, where the bare foundation of the former Wild Knoll home still stood, and the gardens around it still existed as overgrown but deeply evocative terrace plantings and beds. Later that same year, Carly, along with some help from the Surf Point Foundation and collaborating with regenerative farmer Acadia Tucker, started to reestablish the gardens using Sarton's The House by the Sea as a guide, including reimagining the footprint of Sarton's former home as color block flower beds themselves. Carly has described the project as a meditation on human connection to nature and a commentary on time, care, and persistence for an artist and nature itself. Carly joins us today to share her artistic and garden journey of reimagining May Sarton's house and garden by the sea. Carly, I am so excited to speak with you. Welcome to Cultivating Place. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm so happy to be here and excited too. So I've just introduced you, Carly, but I would love to have you reintroduce yourself specifically by telling us who are you in relationship to plants right now? I would say at this very moment, plants for me as a visual artist are a real barometer of time and process for me. They've become a symbol of what that means and the ongoing change that happens in the course of life. They're a real compass for that for me right now. I love that description of both barometer and compass because it not only uh, takes the temperature 
right? And tells you the exact moment of conditions, but it also tells you where you're going. And I I often, when I am speaking, talk about our gardens as uh, as moral and social contracts, but also wayfinders, like a compass, telling us who we are and where we are going. So I would like you to give a little background on how you right now are gardening in companionship with May Sarton. I should start by saying I did not know of May Sarton before I encountered the place where May Sarton lived and wrote for decades. The place is what drew me to the writer, and the writer is the thing that drew me back to the place. So it's an interesting cycle, again, that happened. She also wrote um, a journal style book similar to the On a Solitude style, The House by the Sea. Again, journal style written in the mid-70s. And that book was written at a place called Wild Knoll. Wild Knoll was a property and house that sat on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean in York, Maine. And it was actually a house that May Sarton rented from uh, to an artist and an, and an avid art collector, curator, supporter named Mary Lee Smart. The artist was named Beverly Hallam. Those three women lived on that this 50-acre property until the end of their lives, really. I mean, they lived there until their 80s, which I, I love thinking about, actually. And May Sarton was essentially their friend who was renting from them. But I like to think of her yeah, now yeah. as maybe the first artist in residence at what is now called the Surf Point Foundation. So probably in the 80s, Mary Lee and Beverly started establishing their house, their house by the sea, um, is a 6,000 square foot, very modernist building that has just the world's perfect art studio in it, among other many wonderful rooms. But they they set about protecting the land they owned and putting it in conservation and then turning the building into a residency program for artists after they had passed. So that was the birth of the Surf Point Foundation. This is also, I'm mentioning this part of the story too, because this is what brought me to this particular place in April of 2021. So during the pandemic, I was invited to be a resident at the Surf Point Foundation. And it was kind of a last minute invite uh, another artist wasn't able to make it. So it was unplanned. I, Serendipity. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Yes. Right. And I've just, I've kind of learned over the years that when things like this happen, you say yes and just kind of fall forward and go. And needless to say, I'm very happy I did. But I arrived at this place just totally awestruck. I mean, it is a gorgeous, wild piece of land that I didn't know existed, despite having grown up, you know, within 30 minutes from where it is. And so I had gone there, like most artists do, with an open mind to restore and work and detach and just see what happens. But I did have some projects that I planned on working on when I was there. And on the second day, I was walking around the property and I came upon this foundation site where there was this wide flagstone terrace and overgrown gardens and just literally a blank slate where a house had recently come down the previous winter. And this is how I arrived at this site that felt in the middle of this magical piece of land, this site felt 
like it just had an energy that really made me curious to figure out, okay, what is the story here? Right. You've already mentioned you grew up not far from York, Maine. And for people that might not be familiar, it's, you know, relatively in the southeastern corner of the state, uh, right on the the town of York isn't right on the water, but Surf Point, this piece of property uh, and what was called Wild Knoll is right on the the water. Um, You know, where were you born and raised not far from there? And who were the people and the places and the plants of this exact environment that might have grown you into a human who one says when serendipitous things like this happen, you say yes and fall forward. And two, what have been so gripped by this, the invitation of this just foundation of an old house? Well, in the late seventies, my parents were in love with the ocean and in love with the public beaches in York. So the same town, Um, but they were in their twenties and they couldn't afford to buy anything there. And they were ready to have a house and start a family. So they drove inland until they could find land they could afford, which was about 30 minutes uh, in a little town called Berwick. It's kind of the rural, more blue collar perimeter of some of the more tourist towns on the coast. And so on this land, they worked to selectively take down trees and make them into lumber on the spot. And literally my mother was saying that one to two hand hewn beams were their weekend goals then. And I was, she was pregnant with me at the time. Wow. So in this way, I think placemaking is really one of my first Mm -hmm. experiences. I mean, being watching my parents take a piece of land and thoughtfully convert it into, you know, the house that they still live in built by family members We have a lot of family members in the trades and just a lot of resourcefulness. With that came planting too. So as young as I can remember, I was running around um, local landscaping places and nurseries, uh, finding plants with my parents to establish these, you know, planted yards at their house and going and finding the perfect rocks to build rock walls with my father, um, that kind of engagement with the earth and um, placemaking was really a big part of my growing up. The second thing that comes to mind as far as early touchstone plant experiences During the week, my parents both worked full-time. So after school, I would go to an aunt's house and often grew up with my, my cousin as sisters. And, and they had these giant arborvitaes. I still don't believe that arborvitaes can get this big, but they were giant and overgrown, but in this amazing way that you could literally walk into them. Mm -hmm. And it was like this whole world. And it was our playhouse for years. We would be in there just inventing worlds and like, you know, just having huge imagination and play. And so having those two things married together at a young age too, at the same time was, I think, really important. Right. I love that. I love that. There are several things that come to mind. One is I've never heard such a nice story about an arborvitae. Uh, And, but I can totally see it happening because of the way they kind of lose foliage in the interior and they stay green on the outside. Like if you cut them back hard, you see just this, you know, the skeleton of them inside until they uh, kind of green up again. Um, But also that, you know, a plant was literally the architecture of your imagination in this way is so beautiful. Mm. This is Cultivating Place, 
Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. Carly Glavinsky is an artist working in a wide array of mediums, often uplifting the everyday and the exquisite line between craft and utility and art. Although Sarton died in 1995 and Carly only learned of her in 2021, this week's episode is the magical story of how the two women and their creativity come together in a garden and grow all of our imaginations. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Hey, it's Jennifer. I am loving this theme of reimagining. Reimagining what gardens are, should be, can be. Gardens are, after all, reimaginings of their own, crafted and cared for and loved by people in their places, to grow their food, their beauty, their portal between the outside world and their interior lives. That line on either side of which we retreat from the world or on the other side, we enter and engage with the world. It is an entwinement that goes back to the very first of us, a dance between us and the land, starting in some way from seed and in another way from a seed of thought in our own imaginations. Speaking of seeds, in this germinating seed of a brand new year, I'm headed back on the road and really looking forward to catching up with and meeting some of you. First up, I'm in Chicago to help launch the Chicago Botanic Gardens Super Seed Saturday on Saturday, January 20th. At 1 p.m., I will be speaking about the newest book, What We Sow, as the kickoff event for the annual seed swap there at the garden, happening from 2 to 4 p.m. in Bernstein Hall and Krebiel Gallery. Both events are free of charge, but you must register for the talk as space is limited. For more information and to register, head over to cultivatingplace.com forward slash events. And don't forget to bring seeds to share and bring a good tote bag to take home the seeds you find. I can't wait to see you and share seed stories. Make sure to come by, introduce yourself, and say hello. We're back now to our conversation with artist and gardener Carly Glavinsky, creatively reimagining and engaging with the gardens and now raised home of 20th century poet and writer May Sarton. Sarton died in 1995, but the site of her last house and gardens, known as Wild Knoll, is part of Surfpoint, a nonprofit organization that supports visual artists and art professionals with a year round artists in residence program on the coast of York, Maine. As we come back, Carly is describing more about her own journey to art and how she came to find herself standing in May Sarton's house and garden for the first time. My family never had much of, took much of an interest in, you know, the art world, certainly, or art museums. I don't even think I went into an art museum until I was in college. I don't think I was even aware that you could be an artist. Like that was a, like a formal thing you could be until the end of high school, maybe. And once I realized that that was a a thing to be, I immediately wanted to be in art school. I was always making drawings and making things when I was young. I guess I just never labeled it. And I think I still do that as an artist. I'm very interested in working with many materials, whether they be, you know, high end, low end, 
playing with ideas about what is the separation between craft and fine art and can I make work across painting and sculpture? And now can a work be living? Um, mm. I think I'm just willing to lead with the curiosity and worry about the categories later in general. Yeah. 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 Would you have described, I mean, clearly your parents were gardeners, you know, whether you use that word or not, you were modeled some relationship to planting and tending and caring for the plant lives around you. When you think about as you are evolving into the artist you will become, and of course, we are always evolving in these ways. Did you have an impulse to garden? Were you gardening in your own life, in your own, you know, as you separated from your parents and individuated the way we're all supposed to do? Did you take on gardening as part of your life? Nothing overly serious. It's always been for me, just kind of like a therapeutic hobby type of pursuit. Where we live, we have very little land. So I have to be very creative with gardening on the porch and in containers and uh, all of those things. I would say I've easily maxed out my um, plants per foot at our house probably years ago. But yeah, I've been that way. Taking an interest in it formally has never happened for me. It's always just been kind of this joyful hobby, I guess. I love this because you just described in garden terms, right? That exact line you are interrogating and exploring in the quote unquote art world, like the line between craft and fine art, the, mm. the line between maxing out your property with plants in pots and containers and on your porch, and yet not like really struggling to call yourself a gardener. I love that. Um, I actually don't love that. I want you to embrace the fact that you in, you are a gardener and that's a beautiful expression of it. Uh, and the difference between that and something more formal or academic is so slight as to really merely be a human conceit. That's it. It's just a, a structure uh, uh, that someone put in somewhere and is maybe not useful, really. Mm. But so so be it. Fast forward now to what year was it that you found yourself falling forward towards Surf Point and this first residency that you were invited to? This was April. Oh, right. 2021. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Maybe describe what you had in mind originally when you first accepted that residency. What were you thinking you were going to be working on in that residency, Carly? And maybe mm -hmm. you did, but then we'll take the story from there. Yeah. Yeah. So as someone that's always been working on multiple projects at once, I knew that sometimes where I'm going will dictate the project I want to work on. And in this case, I thought, oh, yes, this will be perfect to work on a project that I have called Canning the Sunset. Oh, yeah. Which is um, a project that began at the beginning of the pandemic when I started attending the sunset like an event. There's actually... On the way to my studio, my art studio, there's this just perfect pull off to get a sunset view. And during the pandemic, there wasn't many other events. So I started doing this and I also was very interested in souvenirs and at the same time had actually uh, taken a huge interest in the shakers, which is another sort of offshoot of my upbringing. But I taught myself how to make these sand paintings in jars and called the work Canning the Sunset. So I would attend a sunset 
and then create this image of that in a in a recycled jar. We were also shopping. It was the pandemic. So we were shopping for family members and I would ask them to keep their jars. And it was like this whole system. And I thought, okay, that'll be perfect for Surf Point where you get this beautiful sunset. You know, the sunset is literally in the house at night. It's it's yeah. wild. So that's what I was going for. But then you take this faded, serendipitous walk around this beautiful property. And, you know, going back to the story of how Mae Sarton found herself here, she had been writing for years. She had been living in a sort of an old farmhouse style house on a town square inland um, in, I think it was New Hampshire, right? Yeah. Nelson, New Hampshire. Nelson. And she had had a terrible depression. She was she was prone to these, uh, but they were also incredible fodder for her writing and her imagination and her thinking and her own personal interrogating, which uh, is all there in the Journal of a Solitude. She had published it. It had received a very like warm reception in the world. And she, I think, found herself, and, and she does talk about this to some extent in The House by the Sea. She has a visit from these women friends, uh, Beverly and, tell me her, the second one? Mary Lee. And Mary Lee. They come for tea one day in Nelson, and uh, they, they are a, a couple, and they say to her, well, we want you to look at the existing house on this property that we are, you know, working on building a new house for for ourselves. So serendipity for her, they offer her this existing, again, sort of older farmhousey kind of a structure that had already been on the property. And as you mentioned, they rent it to her for for very little money for the next for the rest of her life. And it is there she does the rest of her writing, including um, Mrs. Stevens Hears the Mermaid Singing and House by the Sea and subsequent titles. And she gardens, but she knows fairly quickly into this chapter of her life, and and I believe there's a, a beautiful sentence to this effect in the book, that from here on, she is in fact preparing to die. Like this is her last chapter, no matter how long it's going to be, no one knows, but this is it for her. And I think that adds something to the intimacy she she had with the place, the intensity with which she engaged with it. So I just want to lay that a little bit, that foundation <laughs> for you to then talk about your experience um, in encountering this foundation laid bare of what was once a house, but that is surrounded by overgrown gardens that have a really interesting mix of plants. So there's like a presence there in this combination of plants, I think. Yes, presence is definitely felt. Um, When I arrived at Surf Point, the wonderful director there, Yael Reinhartz, she does a great job in orienting the artist to the place itself. And as part of that, she mentioned that, you know, there was a house up on the hill called Wild Knoll. And, you know, you can absolutely go up there. The writer Mae Sarton lived there. And they have an extensive library in in the main house. And you could see all of Mae's books there. So I Mm. knew that this book, The House by the Sea, was on the bookshelf. And then, so I knew that that information was available to me in the house. So when I was alone and I went up to this spot, I was like, oh, you're dropping everything and reading this book because (laughs) this, this place had a presence. And I think there were a few factors that made that presence even more so that the reaction I had seems like a similar reaction to maybe how May felt. We encountered it at a very similar time of year. So I was there in April and on that property, 
there are daffodils everywhere that have just, you know, crept and leapt and gone everywhere over acres of property. So it's just, you know, it's a time of year in Maine and April where everything is brown, mostly still brown, no leaves yet. But you can see the starts of things. You can Mm -hmm. see the bones with just a little bit of the buds, you know, so you can see things clearly. And then this amazing yellow everywhere. And May, when she writes about it, she came there in in May of 73. And I feel like I keep thinking about that, just the proximity of maybe what was growing or what the landscape looked like took Mm -hmm. us both in a similar way. Mm -hmm. And yes, that feeling of, you know, you're at the beginning of the cycle of all of these perennials and you can clearly tell, okay, this is overgrown or this is some weeds or invasives, but then you can tell, oh, this is, this spot was considered, this is an intentional placement. This is, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah. That was all apparent right away. And that, um, because I have lived in houses where a gardener had been, but I didn't know who that gardener was or or what they had been thinking. Like that walking around and getting a sense of someone put this here. And then you kind of wait to see what happens. And you're like, oh, and you feel like the thinking and the planting and the intention, as you say. And then of course they're experiencing of, of, you know, whether it's the snowball bush or the camellia or whatever. So you, you come, you, you feel this presence, you see this open invitation of a foundation um, and you're wondering, and then you decide, I'm going to read this book. What happens from there? gardener artist, Carly. (laughs) Yes. So then, yes, I have this immediate impulse to say, who are you, May Sarton? And go back to down to the house. And of course, the first book I read of hers is going to be The House by the Sea, which they have, you know, the original press of it. And of course, the cover photo is a photo taken by Beverly Hallam of the property, coincidentally, at exactly this sort of April to early May time of year, because the cover is all daffodils. So immediately, I have this experience of just, you know, stand, of time travel, really like standing in this spot, this beautiful history of place, like standing in this spot where this was taken by the woman that created this space, you know, and it was just, I was really taken by that and and the lineage that was happening. So that was happening regardless of May Sarton even liking flowers. That was already, that seed was already planted. But then I started reading the book and then I realized that she was an avid gardener and that she was talking about, she was giving names to some of these plants that I had just seen. And then it started being much more powerful. And this wonderful thing happened where I kind of, the whole project or the whole idea just happened. And that doesn't always work that way. Actually, if you're lucky, it works that way once in a while as an artist. But I thought we need to put the house back as a garden. And when I mean put the house back, I mean literally the size of the house to the scale of the house, which is typical of my work where there's some kind of specific rule base attached, um, a specific scale, something is determining parameters, you know? So this is like a wonderful rule for me to establish this garden. It will be where the house, right where the house was. There was also some history in the town, some politics to navigate with the house. I, as I started really diving in, 
the house had come down just really five months prior to me arriving there. So wow, it set up that experience for me, actually. Like it, it meant the house came down recently enough where it, it was literally bare ground. Yeah. In early it had not yet been overgrown, invaded, yeah. whatever. Right. It was just bare. Because that happened right away after that. <laughs> right. Trust me. Right. Right. It always does. We battled, right. we battled that. But yeah. So again, it I keep thinking of it. The the moment I arrived, the where we were in the season in early April allowed me to think clearly, to see it clearly before it grew up and became, you know, what it was going to do left on its own for a year. So you see the foundation, you read the book, and then you have this flash of inspiration of, I'm going to create a garden in the parameters of the house. I'm going to fill each room with different kinds of plants. And you're going to tell us more about that. But the whole idea came to you at once. That's pretty fun. And so where do you go from there? And was color an aspect from that very first idea you had? I don't think color was there just yet, but I know that I was immediately excited about, okay, I can put the two scale footprint of this house right back where it was, but as garden beds. Uh, That was there from the beginning. I loved the idea of making this living space, growing something new up Mm -hmm. through what was, you know, the previous chapter, the previous history. Loved that idea. I also love the idea of doing that in concert with reestablishing what was already there. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the way this site laid out is there's where the house was. And then there's a big flagstone terrace that's maybe 10 feet wide and well, 10 feet deep, I should say, and about 30 feet across. Yep. And in front of that, there's two built up stone uh, garden beds. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking this week with artist and gardener Carly Glavinsky, creatively reimagining the once upon a time house and garden of 20th century thinker, poet, novelist, critic, and personal journalist, as well as gardener, May Sarton. We'll be right back for more with Carly after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. So one of the sentences that jumped out for me from Carly was in the very beginning of our conversation, where she noted that she came to her residency opportunity at the Surf Point Artist-in-Residence program because another artist could not make it, which opened up an invitation to her. You all know how I feel about the very concept of invitation in our lives. They are all around us, waiting for us to read them and then commit to saying, yes, I will do this. Yes, I will attend. Yes, I am in. And Carly epitomizes that when she tells us, quote, I've kind of learned over the years that when things like this happen, you just say yes and kind of fall forward and go, end quote. Even though, she says yes, even though she's not sure about anything, her intentions, her expectations, the final forms or outcomes. I found this stunningly adventurous, bold and brave to be honest. I admire this kind of creative openness and optimism, not naivete, but confidence that we can be resourceful and artful, that we can and are and will create and grow some fantastic results if we put our minds, imaginations, hands, and hearts into it. That's what the best gardeners do, don't you think?
We're back now to our conversation with artist and gardener Carly Glavinsky, creatively reimagining and engaging with the gardens and foundational home of 20th century poet and writer May Sarton. So you have this 30 by 60 footprint. You want to do the reimagine, the metamorphosis, as it were, of this space, as well as reestablish the beds. I should just add here that this is Saturday morning. I arrived on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, the residency is looking very, very different. Although the the Canning the Sunset project did absolutely come to fruition and is absolutely gorgeous. But clearly, we go on a, a side mm-hmm. eddy here. Yeah. Yes, we fall again, fall forward into this. Well, Again, there's just too much serendipity as somebody that prides myself on being able to pay attention to things. Yeah. I This mm. is just too much lining up. Um, so yes, by Saturday afternoon, I was on the phone with the director, Yael, who I mentioned before. She had, you know, she did a wonderful introduction and then she leaves and goes home and you're on your own. So I'm calling her up two days later saying, Hey, can I just run this idea by you? (laughs) And I will say she just said, yes. I mean, there was this, I don't know, this alchemy that happened during that, you know, 72 hour period that just set it up to happen to have, be able to come to life. And that was really important. Okay. So one of the things that's interesting um, about the, the reestablishment of the pre, you know, of May's garden beds is that the house by the sea essentially gives you a garden tour so that you, you know, what, what you want to add, what you want to weed out, what you could easily complement that would go with what she'd done. Like that was such a beautiful, um, you know, you had a guidebook right there. Mm. So here I am with yes, that idea. Uh, and I have to figure out how to be a gardener. Again, this is something that I do in my practice where I will have an idea and it often involves some process that I haven't done before. And I will do a period of self-learning or bring in people that I know or don't know to consult with and learn from them. I always say Mm -hmm. I'm like kind of a master of nothing, but I'm curious about everything. And I knew immediately once this idea had formed that I knew the perfect person that I could call and talk to about this without them thinking I was crazy. (laughs) And it was the extremely talented and generous Acadia Tucker, who was the sister of a good friend of mine. And she had a whole career on the West Coast as a regenerative farmer. She has grown hops and seaweed and tested organic soils and written three books. And she's just prolific and in that world. And I knew that this would be the perfect person to call. And so I did. And I tasked her with uh, helping me figure out what I was looking at in the terrace gardens. Mm-hmm. And to come up with those initial processes of how do we start to lay the groundwork for the larger garden? And ultimately, she would be the one that that picked the initial plantings based on the variety of factors that we can go into that made the site actually very challenging. But that first spring and summer was all about just seeing what was going to come up like the excitement Mm -hmm. about we think we might know what's going to come up because we have this book as a guide and uh, just watching and fighting some of the invasive weeds. I'm still fighting mint three years later, Mm. (laughs) but just the excitement of that 
deciding to just carefully tend. It was tending in this very different way because, you know, things come up and you think, is that going to be a weed? Oh, maybe it's not. Maybe we'll leave it. Maybe we'll, you know, there's a lot of that. Oh, yeah. Because and of course, the house by the sea was just like her first two, two or three years on the site. And she was there for many more years. So like what she added later, and I know you did research into her papers that are held at uh, the, is it at the University of Maine Library? Um, The University of New England has uh, in Maine, in, in Portland, Maine, they have the Maine Women's Writers Association that has the archive of the incredible archive of of May and her life and photographs and yeah so you had other things to work with okay it relied on the expertise of Acadia her knowledge of plants um and then became bigger than me quite quickly I mean I was going once every two weeks to weed which was like not enough at all mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh trying to explain the project and plan for it with the board of surf point and but still letting it fully form and um so we ultimately decided to just tend it and watch what it was going to grow for that first year mm-hmm. while we planned the larger garden okay what did come up that year and what were you excited to see and say, oh, she talked about that? So the real big one was the peonies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were also really easily identified in the garden as existing, but she talks about them a lot. And I mean, peonies as a flower are drama anyway. <laughs> You know, so, so true. It's, and if they come up in the wrong week, they're ruined. So it's like you wait with bated breath for these peonies to happen, you know. Um, so we were really excited about that. We were also thinking that flocks, we would see a lot of flocks because she does talk about that a lot. As we started uncovering things, though, so I literally had this experience of taking this overgrown, a lot of things were overgrown with bittersweet, other climbers. I was just freeing things constantly. And I took this whole just handful of weeds off and there was a peony the size of a cabbage just in full bloom underneath all of this stuff. Wow. Oh, that's so great. You know, like all these crazy discoveries kept happening. Right. And ultimately there are beautiful iris. There's some wild rose. There's yeah. Um, I'm forgetting everything that I saw when I when I was able to be there with you. Um so right away, without much help, there's um lots of columbine, lots oh, yeah. of wild geranium, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh there's some mullen on the site trillium a lot of iris so like five different colors of iris really beautiful of course the peonies some more um sedums and stone crop because it's a it is uh you know a rock wall and there's beautiful ivy happening what else uh invasive list would be the crazy also long (laughs) also long yes right Uh, Mint has been, was just everywhere, a few different kinds of mint. And do we think that was planted by May for use in the house or, or or did it just. I have a feeling it escaped, but knowing what I know now about the wildlife friends in the area, it could have been intentional at first to have it maybe in pots all around. It just as a natural deterrent. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. All right. So these come up, you, you, you're like getting to know the site, getting to know the soil, getting to know May Sarton, getting to know her plants. How is the planning going for the gardened house? Planning is going pretty good at this point. I'm also realizing that 
I've gotten myself into a quite large project, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> this is when you start attaching terms like labor of love to it, you know? Yes, yes. <laughs> but at this point, I've come to decide that I want each each room in the house. So we had access to the floor plan, the original the original architect floor plan. Oh, nice. Yeah. So that's what we use to measure against and scale and all of that. But I decided that in order to also make a delineation between rooms and space in the house, that I would like to have a color theme for each room and sort of organize things around that. At this point, it was just a a major benefit if we could organize bloom times too. Mm-hmm. So that you had something in bloom in that color in that room across the year. Yes. So this yeah. Okay. This is the Rubik's cube that I gave Acadia, <laughs> um, <laughs> and we know I should also say uh, the other hurt major hurdles of the site is that it's quite wild there meaning even driving there it's it's normal to see three or four deer um to see groundhogs to see you know all of these friends so we were looking for mostly perennials that had some kind of you know were maybe off-putting to some of the local wildlife right there was also no running water at the site no so we would later solve that with a very fancy system that involved my husband, Tyler, putting an irrigation tank in the back of his truck and driving it down to the big house, filling it up while I weeded. Then he would come back up and we would use a generator to water. So that was date night. <laughs> Literally date night. I have a picture of like this water tank filling up in his truck with a pizza on the back of the pickup truck. <laughs> Like, this is what we're doing. Uh, oh my gosh. Um, that is a labor of love. And and so at this point, and then I want to get into the specific plants you did choose, because those are some seriously tough constraints. Being able to withstand both deer and groundhogs, not a, it's not a long list of plants that are going to fit that and be in the colors you want. And then to have the irrigation, which of course, no matter how drought tolerant you plant, you must have water to establish the garden and to, you know, supplement on years when the the weather might not work in your favor. So you come up with your plan with Acadia on the colors and then the plant list for these colors. Do you want to walk us through the colors in each room and and some of the selections you at least started with in the first planting? Sure. So we had a white blooming room, which consisted of things like um, a white flowering nepeta, uh, shasta daisies, a stilby. Then we had a pink blooming room, which originally started off with um, flocks, which didn't stand a chance with groundhogs um, to be continued. Then some dianthus in the pink room, bee balm, some echinacea. Then the orange room originally had butterfly weed, some heliopsis, the false sunflower, mm -hmm. um, lots of marigolds I added to that. Uh, eventually it would have um, some tiger lilies and calendula and some cosmos mm -hmm. in the second year in the yellow room there was daylilies rubecchia again just total devastation rubecchia uh yellow yarrow um some evening primrose and this year snapdragons mm -hmm. did those overwinter for you or no no Okay. Yeah. So you have a mix of annuals and perennials at this point, and now you're just playing a testing game of who's going to eat what, what's mm -hmm. going to thrive, what's going to survive, what's going to reseed, all of these things. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So wait, let me go back. We have white, 
We have pink. We have orange. We have yellow. Do we have purple? We've got purple and blue. So the little bathroom is blue. That's right. Okay. And that is sea holly, which I just, I love, and delphinium. And then the purple room is agastache and hyssop Mm -hmm. and some speedwell and eventually some allium and snapdragons in there too. Yeah. Um, I would say the the plants from the first season, um, oh, Yellow Room had had Coreopsis that did great, actually. Okay. Uh, the first year was very much all about life support, right? Yeah. It was yeah. also, we started it in a drought. 2022 was a huge drought, which meant we were doing a lot of a lot of date nights watering and the animals in the area became alert to this garden pretty quickly and thanked us for the buffet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I decided early on that this is actually what I wanted as frustrating as that is. And as you know, it's so the garden didn't come together like this poetic vision that I, you know, it does. We all have. That we and they all never have. do. You're not right. <laughs> walking around seeing like, look, here's the fully bloom white and pink. And it wasn't that in the first year. It was, you know, the flocks are totally gone. The Rubecchia would be totally gone. And I should say throughout this whole process, part of the idea to have this conversation with May Sarton meant that I wanted to journal about this experience the way May Sarton journals. You know, I'm not a, again, I'm not a writer, but just the record keeping of the place uh, felt like the, the right thing to do to keep the whole idea alive. So this makes for some good journal entries, let's just say. Oh, I bet. I bet. <laughs> and, and one thing we haven't noted is that you know, the determination to not fence, to not use poisons, to work with what you have where you are, um, fits the vision that uh, the founders of Surf Point had in conserving their land. And that's contextualized by a quite famous neighbor. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Part of the land at Surf Point abuts Rachel Carson conservation land. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, to me, that's sort of like, okay, my job here is not, I mean, it might be frustrating, but my job here is not to give in to that frustration and fall back on the convenience that has gotten us into the global mess we're in, but to lean into the, yes, okay. So what don't you like to eat, dear? Uh, And you know, how can I make that work here while you are still eating and having a healthy life just outside on the edge or, you know, and it's not an exclosure. There's, you know, it's open. Yeah, I that was a deliberate decision to not fence. I found it strange if I was making this space into something new and growing this new environment up where this house once stood, I didn't really want to claim it in that way, like the f- putting mm-hmm. a fence. Uh, I really wanted to lean in to the learning. So, you know, what works this year? And maybe we'll just really lean hard into that next year and see what happens. Yep. And that's also where I would say in the second year, I got uh, introduced to a wonderful local flower farmer and gardener, Elizabeth Brown, who runs a small farm called Foxglove Flower Farm. She was a wonderful source of um, more plant knowledge, especially with adding some annuals in that Mm -hmm. were animal resistant and the idea of planting them together or next to and around things that may get eaten. And that was brilliant. So the garden just brought the right things to itself and continues to do so. (laughs) Yeah. So there are so many other things to ask, but I'm very aware of, of our time now. And, you know, when you 
look back at these now full three years, 21, 22, 23, and you think about all the lessons that you have learned in in collaboration with the foundation and and you know the funding support and the space support with your collaboration with Acadia with your many I think you have a, a healthy handful of volunteers who support the work at this point and uh never enough funding but enough that you keep going um and you know the input of someone like Elizabeth who in fact is who tipped me off to the existence of this super cool creative garden project uh, around May Sarton's House by the Sea, uh, which has been a favorite of mine. And, and May Sarton is a longtime touchstone in my life. What are your greatest hopes for maybe other artist residents experiencing this, for the energy you give and receive from this space and for anyone listening to this story like what is what is the what is this manifestation offering up if you will or growing in this in this world carly i think now i'm really interested in highlighting this inseparability of the natural and the social, the relationships mm. between environment and community. For this specific place, I now see it as a, as a stage. Um, I don't feel like an author of this project anymore. I feel like its next, its next progression is to be a stage for collaboration with other artists and makers and writers and choreographers and chefs who can interact with this space now as it is now um, yeah. and carry the history forward to make a new chapter. Any hopes about what May Sarton might think of this project? I think that May would approve. There's a quote in the house by the sea that says that where she says it's the land that's what drew me here, not the house. And so I think that that spirit survives in this project. Yeah. 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 If you had five plants and you maybe live in your own house by the sea and maybe they're they're a combination of your plants and May's plants or what you might think May's plants would be. If you had five plants you wouldn't want to garden without after this experience with this really creative uh, metamorphosis, what would what would those plants be, Carly? This one is tough. Um, I think for sure I have to have nasturtiums. I'm in love with their leaves. They're edible, so I would survive. I also love their big fat seeds. <laughs> yeah, they're the little brain-like yes, seeds. I love, I love them, them too. Yes. Um, sea holly, I've fallen in love with that blue color. It's uh, it's yeah. beautiful, but it's, it's like, I don't know. It seems like it's going to be, you know, hard exterior, but it, then it's like soft and quite lovely. Sedums. I'm in love mm -hmm. with, just always have been, can't explain it. They're just beautiful. They're beautiful and tough and interesting texture yeah. and yeah. Texture, texture. Yeah. I think May, May would want a crab apple tree for sure. I like it. Yeah. Okay. May would want peonies for sure. And I think really the queen of that garden is the climbing hydrangea that is, I think, 60 years old at this point. Wow. Um, yeah. Those would be May's choices. I would pick tomatoes as my vegetable. May would pick peas. Okay. I think together you have a beautiful garden. Yeah. Some food, some flowers, <laughs> some architecture. I like it. I like it a lot. 
Thank you so much. I will share so much more about my visit to you with Elizabeth and John was with me in Maine this last fall and we will share lots of pictures, but I just so appreciate your big creativity and heart for what you have done in this space in in May Sarton's House by the Sea. It's really inspirational. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me share. Carly Glavinsky is an artist, maker, thinker, creator, and gardener based in York, Maine. Since 2021, Carly, working with the SurfPoint Foundation and Artists in Residence program, and a collaborator and regenerative farmer, Acadia Tucker, has been reinvigorating the historic gardens of 20th century writer May Sarton. They have also been reimagining Sarton's final home, known as Wild Knoll, on the southeast coast of Maine as a color-themed flower garden itself, growing from the footprint of the now-raised house. As of fall 2023, Carly has hosted the first plant sale for and from the Wild Knoll Garden, and she has another scheduled in the spring of 2024. My conversation with Carly went well over the amount of time we have available for our on-air program. So for the full conversation, please make sure to listen to this week's podcast version of the program, a link to which you can find in this week's show notes, always published over at cultivatingplace.com under the podcast tab. The show notes will also give you much more information on the Wild Knoll Garden Project and has many photographs of the garden, Carly and her gardening team, both past and present. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss a growing conversation. Join us again next week when we continue our theme of reimagining in conversation with Justin Luong, Assistant Professor of Rangeland Resources in the Department of Forestry, Fire, and Rangeland Management at Cal Poly Humboldt in Arcata, California. Listen in. That's next week right here. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doolist Transcription, and communications support from Ohio-based Deanna Newport and Matt Valiga. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.